This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. We're delighted to have with us um, Dr. Christopher Yuan and uh, his father, Leon, and mother, Angela. Um, Dr. Yuan has taught at um, Moody Bible Institute for over 10 years now. How many years is it exactly? 11 years uh, at Moody Bible Institute. He has a degree from Moody Bible Institute. He's got another one from Wheaton Graduate School and then another one from Bethel Seminary and uh, has been speaking at conferences, retreats, and churches, not just domestically, right? Have you, it's worldwide, right? Yeah. And uh, on, on some topics that, that are hot topics today, as you'll find out. Um, Dr. Leon and Angela Yuan, uh, not just one doctorate though, right? More than one, yeah? We'll have to talk about how in the world you accomplished that at some point. But um, they, uh, you're, you're going to hear in their story, they've experienced heartache. They know what it's like to live through a, um, an era of life with a prodigal child. And um, God has turned their mourning into dancing. And that is a redemptive story that we're delighted to share with you uh, today. Um, Christopher has authored uh, some books. Uh, two of the ones that I want to highlight, number one is Out of a Far Country, uh, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. It's their story, what you'll hear this morning. They have uh, Christopher and Angela co-authored the book, and uh, you'll, you'll want to make sure that you visit the book table after the service today because uh, you want to pick this up. And he's got a new one that just released this last Thanksgiving, uh, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand story, which is um, rich uh, theology of not just sexuality, though that's the prevailing theme. There's rich theology in there about identity, about sanctification, stuff about singleness. Um, so those books are available in the, in the back table, and I would encourage you to go visit uh, after the service is done. Pick up several copies and, and give them to your friends and, and family members. But for now, let's listen to their story. Would you give a warm welcome to the Yuan family, please? America, where money grows on trees <laughs> and streets aligned with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceive when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. I quickly realized how wrong I was. <laughs> The first night I stayed in my friend's rundown apartment in the slum of Harlem. Even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people wearing masks, ring doorbells, and said, trick or treat. <laughs> I said to myself, what have I got myself into? <laughs> Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later, and we married the next year. I also assumed 
just because we were in love, we will simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> we were not Christian then after years of unresolved issue and self-centered living. Our, our marriage was a disaster. So with encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on that same year, May 17, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his first year in dental school. He made an announcement, I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her of making our son gay. Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there is nothing I can do besides. Isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responded quite differently. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have cut me with a knife, and it would have hurt less. In my mind, Christopher, who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope. As my world fell apart around me, I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with the minister who gave me a painful on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never be much a reader. On the train, I began to read the pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation that all of us are sinners. Yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I called a number from the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, 
and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife. The lady was very, very excited. She told me, your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. I told her, this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has got on her side. But what I realized, her transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know God was also work on me, so I started going to church with her, and a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF, Bible Study Fellowship where we grow deeper into the understanding and love for God and his word. It, will, it was while studying the word that I also surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue, kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead as our son Christopher walked further and further away from God. For my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese-American kids. Obey your parents, do well in school, and practice piano. <laughs> I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity, and Satan can't take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house, at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. With pornography fueling my desires, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I moved from Chicago to Louisville where I began pursuing my doctorate in dentistry, and there I finally came out of the closet and I began living openly as a gay man in the gay community. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Now, I need to be clear, not all gays and lesbians do drugs. Not all gays and lesbians are promiscuous. Some are, some are not, but that certainly is, unfortunately, part of my story. And when I tell it, I have to tell you my whole story and be honest about that. But I also want to tell you that when you encounter Jesus, He will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like my classmates, I didn't have much money. And if I was going to do drugs, I had to find a way to support my habit. And I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. You see, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, 
the administration expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville. And I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad's a dentist, and he knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parent should do anyway? <laughs> to my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. You see, my mom knew that when it comes to her kids, nothing is more important than her children following Jesus. Even more important than education. Even more important than a career. But you know, the sad reality is many people here in America might go to church on Sunday and worship God, but then they'll return home and worship idols. The idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401K. And in essence, sometimes we are making our kids do the same. Think about this. Do parents put more emphasis upon making their kid sure their kids get their homework done? making sure their kids get a better grade so they can get into a good school? Or should Christian parents be putting the most emphasis upon their children following Jesus? It's no wonder why many youth grow up in church and they go off to college and they leave their faith behind because maybe they weren't even worshiping God in the first place. When it comes to our kids, nothing is more important than them following Jesus. But can I tell you, I was not happy about my mom's decision. <laughs> she was not on my side. She was on the school side, I felt. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there, I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community. And I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs, but we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week, and I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hints. At the bottom of each card, I signed, love you forever mom. But little did I know he never read them. He simply tossed them into the trash. My wife and I knew the only way, if we want to see our son, we have to fly from Chicago to Atlanta, so we did. On the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused, but I left 
it on his counter anyway. And we found out later he took my Bible, threw it into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I uh, committed not to focus on our hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our church, from BSF, we cry out to God for our son Christopher. My wife began to pray a very bold prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for eight years. Once fasted 39 days for our son, Christopher. Every morning, she would literally spend hours inside her prayer closet, on her knees, reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher, and praying for herself, for me, and for many others. She wrote out some of her prayers. Following is one of those prayers. I was staying in the gap for Christopher. I was staying until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I was staying in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor. Don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede. Though it may take years, but I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I prayed those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher. But the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. As what Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Often answered a prayer doesn't come quickly, and this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my Mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it was going to take nothing short 
of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with the bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlantic City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that actually get me more into trouble than anything else. Well, what I didn't know was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. Remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she had prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So mothers, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. <laughs> so I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I did not want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But actually my mother's first words were, son, are you okay? No condemnation, no braiding words just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice Paul isn't saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath. But it's God's kindness that that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out lavishly His grace and drawing me to Himself through the words of my mother. Actually, to be honest, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because <laughs> I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone was a calculator. 
And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is, is in a safe place compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And after my years in prison, this list is longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. And actually, I was doing my very best to stay to myself. I didn't want to mingle too much with those really bad people, you know, those criminals. I passed by this, this garbage can. And if you've never been to jail, they don't take the trash out every day. The garbage was overflowing out of the can. It reeked. Flies were circling around it. I looked at this trash, and I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper-middle-class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorates. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But you know, I wasn't thinking this is the Word of God. I wasn't even thinking that this will be the answer to some of my problems. Actually, I simply thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. But as many of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, my friends, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things couldn't get any worse. Was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. The prison guards handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shoveled into the nurse's office. She shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read H-I-V 
positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract his various disease. And my worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal prison. But news of his HIV status was like a death sentence, a verdict I could not accept. Hang on the phone, the pains of grief torn at my broken heart like a knife. Endlessly, I dragged my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees as stinging tears blurred my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart the soft and sweet string of him fill my ears and repeat over and over. It is well, it is well with my soul. after receiving that devastating news I was in my prison cell all by myself just contemplating the mess that I made of my life I lie there on the bed and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me 
There was graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. But someone had written something else in the corner. And it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I'd done in my past, he still, he still had a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you that at that moment, I got down on my knees, I said a sinner's prayer, and then everything after that was perfect, like I had no more problems. Far from the truth. There were many problems. God was convicting me of my dependencies. The most obvious was drugs. I'm in prison for drugs. That's the most obvious. No one needs to be convinced me of that. That was the first idol, but within a few months, God delivered me from the bondage of that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other dependencies, other idols, and there was one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of. It was my sexual identity. I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. As I kept reading, I came across some passages, three in the old, three in the new, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion. I'm a brand-new Christian. I wanted to ask someone who's studied the Bible for himself, the chaplain. So I told him. I shared with him about my past, and to my surprise, he told me that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality, and he even gave me a book explaining that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you, from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God his word and his unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. I wanted to find any type of a positive affirmation for a monogamous same-sex relationship. I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any 
So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and His Word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality, by not allowing my sexual attractions to control who I was, and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I learned several important lessons. First of all, I learned that abstaining from sex is actually possible. I know the world says it's not, but it actually is. Who knew? <laughs> Second, I learned that sexual abstinence is not going to make me psychotic or sick, no matter what Freud and Oprah say. <laughs> Third, I realized after abstaining from sex for a little while that actually my sexuality doesn't have to be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally, and that's true. Don't be, but don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore, God doesn't want me to change. And I bet you hear this from your friends who say something like, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading through the Bible, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say it again. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my sexual desires. My identity is not gay, is not ex-gay, is not even heterosexual for that matter, because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. I had thought in the past that if I were to become a Christian, that I would have to become heterosexual, that somehow the more sexually attracted I were to women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation. I would still need to put to death my sin nature. So actually, heterosexuality is not the goal. God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did God say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Rather, God said, be holy, for I am holy. So therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That's not the goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin struggle is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm tempted, because I will be tempted, just as Jesus Christ was tempted. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling, but I, because I will struggle. But I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling, not whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God. 
in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life, and He called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling on life would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and He shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in a federal prison. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called them, collected my parents. I told them, I think God's calling me to ministry. And I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of called Moody Bible Institute. But then there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison, and I was so excited when I got it. I tore it open, began filling it out, writing my essays, until I got to the very last page where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. <laughs> But I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. Uh, I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody in 2005. I went on to my master's in exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School in 20, uh, 2007. And then in 2014, received my doctorate of ministry from Bethel Seminary in St. Paul. And in 2011, I had the immense honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote it together. She wrote chapter one. I wrote chapter two. She wrote chapter three. She wrote all the odd chapters. I wrote the even chapters because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal, and then the best part is how God and His power and His grace brought us all back together. Our book now is in seven different languages, including Spanish, Chinese, Korean, and in the back of every book is a free eight-week discussion guide. In the back of all of these books is a free eight-week discussion guide that small groups are using. And actually, we found out recently that Christian high schools, several Christian high schools are now using our book, this one, as a textbook. Imagine that. I know. Amazing. We never, when we wrote it, we just thought we want to put our story out there. Never thought that it would be a textbook for high school students. But it makes sense. Because I hope you realize this. Our youth are being flooded, intentionally inundated with resources on sexuality, almost all from a non-Christian worldview. Just go to the public libraries. Just go to the public schools, their libraries, and see all the books on sexuality from picture books on up, kindergarten. And you know, parents, that the school doesn't have to tell you when they're going to discuss these things with you. Because, of course, parents, you're ignorant and you don't know any better. You know, 
The main responsibility to teach our youth about sex education should not and does not rest primarily on the shoulders of the public schools. Amen? One person under, uh, agrees. <laughs> I'll say that again. The primary responsibility to teach our youth about sex and sexuality does not primarily rest on the public school shoulders. Amen? Amen. And I'm going to say something else. The primary responsibility to teach our youth about sex and sexuality does not rest either primarily on the youth pastor's shoulders. <laughs> Even pastors, it's not our primary. We're, we're here to cheer you on, and I, I hope that in youth group they will talk about sex, but it will not be, should not be the main or only way they hear about sex, biblical sexuality. You know whose shoulders it primarily rests upon? Parents, dads, mothers. And I'm going to add something that might make a few of you feel uncomfortable. Not only dads and moms, you know who else? Granddads, grandmoms. Don't think that you're scot-free, that your only job is to spoil your kids, your grandkids. Do that, but also talk about sex. You know why I say that? Think about... When you were a teenager, how much did you listen to your parents when you were a teenager? Grandparents, you might have more of a listening ear to your grandkids than the parents do, than your kids do to your grandkids. Are you using that for your advantage? And I know as Christian parents, we want to protect our kids. We don't want to expose them to the world. We live in a new world. And the question should no longer be, when is it too young to talk to my kids? That's the wrong question in 2019. You know what's the correct question we should be asking ourselves? When is it too late? Because really, I believe if parents, you are not the first people to talk to your kids about sex, the first ones, you may be too late. The world has already beat us to our kids. That should never happen. Amen? Let's make that change. We have to beat the world. And if the world is talking about sex and sexuality and transgenderism in kindergarten, let's beat them to it and do it in a God-honoring way. Not simply that, oh, the, the, you know, that's bad, that's horrible, but let's talk about sin, God's grace, and the redemptive power of Jesus. We have to talk to our kids. There's this grandmother. We were also uh, in a more rural area. It was in Oklahoma. And she went back to her. She, we gave our message. She made a beeline toward, toward our book table. And she went up to me. She's like, I want 10 books. I was like, you just need one. No, young man, I need 10. She said, one for myself, nine for my grandchildren. She said, I'm going to mail every one of them a book, and she said, I'm going to read it with them, and I'm going to discuss it with them. That's a grandmother that is taking seriously the God-given responsibility we all have, parents and grandparents, to not shove the responsibility into the arms of the world, because believe me, they will take it gladly, and they have taken it gladly. We have to take it back. Silence is no longer an option. Amazingly, uh, actually, my next book 
is called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. I really like the cover. If you notice, it's black and white. That's intentional. As I began my talk last night, I said we live in a world of infinite shades of gray, don't we? Not just 50, infinite. But biblical sexuality is black and white. Amen? And I wanted to give not just about what is right or wrong, because there's several books that have done that well and talking about the biblical, you know, the biblical aspect, but I wanted to give a theological aspect, looking at all of Scripture and how does all of Scripture tell us about who we are, our identity, who we are according to the image of God, according to our sin nature, how do we work with our desires and temptations, what, what, what does sexuality look like for everyone, not just addressing this issue with people who have same-sex attractions, how do we view marriage, singleness, and then it's from that foundation that then we can springboard into loving correctly because I think sometimes we want to jump in and love, right? You hear people that are like, oh, I'm just going to love. Okay, well, what does that love look like? Because if your love is not, has no foundation, it's just quicksand, that ain't love. God's love is firmly grounded in his truth. And if our love is not grounded in any truth and you're just jumping in and trying to do right before you think right, you may be doing wrong. So my book just came out, uh, really excited about that, and, and, I, and I believe there's a talk recorded from last night, if, not, uh, if it, you guys can go and listen to that. Um, but what's so amazing is that God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. My parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and God's truth on this issue of sexuality. And then if it is as if that wasn't a big enough blessing, God really has a sense of humor because he's brought me back to Moody where I'm now teaching in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? <laughs> but God has done, God has done far, far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked You know, I look back upon our lives before Christ, years, decades, running from God. And I see a lot of really bad decisions that I made. Some of, the, some of those decisions resulted in some big consequences. One of those being HIV positive. But you know, I realize I'm no different than any of you. All of our days are numbered. Not one person in this room, young or old, has ever been promised tomorrow here on this good earth. And you know, it took contracting HIV, a virus that has no cure, for me to realize a very important truth. That as a child of God, I must live with a sense of urgency. This world we live in today, as crazy as it is, you know, I'm convinced this world doesn't need another good Christian. 
a good Christian who might go to church every Sunday, good people in the eyes of man, but doing little for the kingdom of heaven. This world and all its craziness, threat of nuclear war, terrorism, orphans, widows, disease, earthquakes. This world we live in today, 2019, doesn't need another good Christian, but what it needs, what it demands, are great Christians. Christians who don't settle for mediocrity. Christians who don't care what the person on the left says or what the person on the right says, but they're living for an audience of one. Christians who are living with a sense of urgency. Our days are numbered. Are you living it all for the glory of God or are you living it for the glory of man? Because whether you are ready or not, there will come one day in the blink of an eye where every one of us will one day stand before our God. And I hope that he can look at us in the eyes and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you broken vessels. God, we know that you are God and we are not. You are the creator of all that was, is, and will be. You are the ones that, you are the one that set the stars in their place, put the planets in motion. Lord, you filled the earth with life and you crowned all of creation with humanity. And you created us in your image. God, forgive us that we have chased after vain things. Worldly matters that don't really have any value. God, forgive us. Help us, God, to live with a sense of urgency. Help us, God, to count our days, knowing that our time here on earth is short and what you've called us to do, Lord, must have a purpose. God, I pray that you will renew us in your spirit, revive us in your word, oh God. God, enable us to make a difference where we are one life at a time. We praise you. We love you. Help us to love you more. Help us, God, to love you more than life. We ask all these things in the matchless, powerful name of Jesus, the Messiah.